chapters 12 to 14. These are the visions in the open scroll. And we're going to detail these symbols so that we can find out what they mean and how they apply to us today. So what John is about to unpack in this, these chapters for the seven churches, which was at the beginning of the book, is just as big of a deal to us today as it was for them. So we kick off chapter 12 with a dragon, a couple wild battles, um, and then enters what you've all been waiting for, the beast. Now, <laughs> in preparing the graphic for this sermon series, Craig wanted to put on, you know, how we have these little, like, notes and stuff. He wanted to put beast. And Josiah's like, I'm not putting beast on it. Josiah did the graphic. He's like, I'm not putting beast on it. So that's not what people want to see. But anyway, I know that the, the question that Craig left us with last week was, who is the beast? Who is the beast? So enters the beast. So this chapter starts with two battles. There is a spiritual or cosmic battle and then there is a natural or what I call earthly battle. And these battles are the root issue behind what was the problems of the seven churches in Asia from the first chapters of the book of Revelation. So first, the cosmic spiritual battle. All right. So this is when the churches were under the persecution of Rome. But it's the evil spiritual side of that. So if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, we will see the first meetup of this evil serpent, as we saw back then, and humankind, which was Adam and Eve specifically. And here now we are about to see the serpent again, but not a serpent anymore, a dragon once again, attacking humankind, starting with the woman, with a woman, like in Genesis, and then her seed. Now, I want to pause just for a moment just to say this. There is a profound attack on women. Identity and purpose from the beginning has been waged war on us pushing us down, not allowing us to rise into who God has created us to be. The devil started in the beginning by questioning Eve, how, how you, maybe you could be so much better of a person if you only knew more, if you only were more. And here we see the purposes of God through the woman in this book being waged again in order to stop the plans of heaven. See, we need to know as women who we are and our purpose here on earth. And it is not tied to, to anything that you do or your career or, or necessarily, you know, as, as a mom or as a sister or as a wife. It's not, it's not that we, of course, all those things are important and they matter and they're of value to who you are. But that is not where your purpose, your kingdom purpose lies or your identity lies. I believe that there is uh, an uprising of women leadership coming in the earth. And with that, there needs to be an uprising of women leadership in the church. And this is not some sort of feministic uprising. This is divinely planted and seeded of the Lord from the beginning. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown-like garland of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in birth pains in the anguish of her delivery. Then another ominous sign was seen in heaven, a huge, fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven kingly crowns upon his head. I just want to say right now, that's just blasphemous numbers trying to take from, from good, from what God, those God-given numbers, and now the enemy is trying to place them on himself. His tail swept and dragged down a third of the stars angels and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stationed himself in front of the woman that he might devour the child. And she brought forth a male child, one who is destined to shepherd all the nations. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this child represents Jesus, our Messiah, and then uh, the, and the attack on him and all of his people to come, which is us today as well. And then verse 7, then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels went forth to battle with the dragon. See, this is all happening in the spiritual uh, atmosphere. And then the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated and there was no room found for them in heaven any longer. And the huge dragon was cast down and out. He was forced out down to earth and his angels and demons were flung along with him. Then I heard a strong, loud voice in heaven say, Now it has come, the salvation and power of the kingdom, of our God and power of Christ, for the accuser of the brethren. He who keeps bringing before our God charges against them day and night has been cast out. So this was a powerful time, okay? There's, you know, you know the history of this is that the devil was an angel in heaven. He was cast down. And a third of the angels with him, which is now the demons. And now they are free on the earth to roam and come after us, the seed of the Messiah. So Jesus defeats the dragon through his death as the slain lamb. And then he comes back to life as the reigning king. The dragon's thrown to earth on a mission to destroy us all. There's pain, there's attack, there's a persecution, there's hate. There's all kinds of things in the earth as you see. But they conquer, the people conquer, it says in the scripture, but the dragon by resisting the devil, even if it kills them, and for some it does, which we've talked about, the martyrs. It says in verse 11, they have overcome him by the means of the blood of the lamb and the utterance of their testimony, for they did not love and cling to life, even when faced with death. So through this sign, John is attempting to show the churches, the seven churches, that people and problems and day-to-day -day issues and conflicts are not your real enemy. But rather, there are real, dark, demonic forces at work behind the scenes and we are pushed on every side by them. So what I'm saying is, you might think this, but the, your problem today is not your wife. <laughs> your problem today is not your job. Your problem today is not your government. 
Ephesians 6 verse 12, for we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against depositions, against powers, against the world rulers of present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly sphere. So why do we constantly forget this? I think it's because it's just easier to fixate on what's in front of us rather than what's behind it. See, we can't keep messing this up, though, because the end result of, of when we continue to mess this up is, is a failed marriage, a frustrated life, constant pressure where you feel weighed down. See, because our problems are not of this world, we cannot overcome them with the tools of this world. Arguments, fights, pros and cons lists. I mean, I like a good pros and cons list. Like, it's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that I'm not going to solve the deep problems attacking my life with that list. The true source of our problems is the spiritual warfare at work behind the facade of something that we cannot see. So I just, before I just keep, continue to go on through Revelation, I want to say this. There are three heavens referenced in Scripture. You're probably going to come and ask me about this later. But, because I'm going to go through it quick. The first heaven is reference to earth as we know it. So if someone says like, oh, the first heaven, it's like, it's just like earth. It's like natural resource, natural thinking, natural way of life. The second heaven is the realm of the demonic. This is where the devil and his demons are at work. Okay. And, and the enemy's assignment and plans. And then the third heaven is what we call heaven. You say, oh, heaven. And that is the kingdom of God, his rule, his reign, his courthouse, his ruling, his dominion, his supernatural encounter, resources, things like that. Okay, the spiritual powers that attack us in the first heaven, in earth, in our day-to-day -day life, come from a second heaven position. The devil and his demonic followers. In order to combat a second heaven problem, we have to approach it with a third heaven resource, which is the Lord and his lordship and the authority that he's given us on the earth. Okay. If we operate in a first heaven perspective with a seven heaven, second heaven problem, we, it's, it's not going to work because we're just dealing in the natural. We're using our minds. We're trying to figure it out, but it is a spiritual attack. So we need to go over here to the kingdom resources and authority and jurisdiction and in Jesus' name, attack that problem. All right. So uh, now here's the deal. Not every battle is demonic, and I know that, but if it is demonic, you need to approach it with a spiritual approach and a, and a heaven resource. Declarations of the word of the Lord, his promises, his victory, the victory of the slain lamb. Okay, now moving on. All right. So during, that was the first vision we talked about, which was the cosmic spiritual battle of the woman and the dragon and all of that. Now in, in the second part, in, in John chapter 13, he moves on to his next vision. And this time he focuses on the earthly battle. And this is based out of Daniel 7 and through 12 and his animal visions. Okay, so if you want to look that up at another time, you could totally do that. It might help. So here, John in this vision sees two beasts. The beasts. The beasts are empowered by the dragon. So who or what are the beasts? The first beast represents national military power 
that conquers through violence. Violence. The second beast represents the economic system that elevates this power, this economic system in our world as sacred, divine, above everything else. Okay, the first beast, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. As I stood on the sandy beach, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On his horns he had ten royal crowns and blasphemous titles. And the beast that I saw resembled a leopard, but his feet were like a bear and his mouth like a lion. And to him the dragon gave his own might and power and throne and dominion. All right. And one of his heads seemed to have a deadly wound, but his death stroke was healed and the whole earth went after him in amazement, admiration. Wow, you're so awesome. You're so spectacular. This is a good thing. So they fell down. They pay homage to the dragon because he had bestowed all on the beach, all his dominion and authority. They praised and worshiped the beast, exclaiming, who is a match for this beast? And who can make war against him? Verse 7. He was further permitted to wage war on God's holy people. And to overcome them. And the power was given him to extend his authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth would fall down in adoration and pay homage. Everyone whose name had not been recorded in the book of life. Of the lamb that was slain. So the beast, it said, had a fatal or deadly wound, but yet was still alive. So what this would suggest is that the beast is a force to be dealt with. And he will not go down without some intention. Basically, we can't just ignore the beast and pretend it. hopefully it'll go away. Do you remember, uh, maybe you remember your kids when they were like little in school, the debug way? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And so if there's like another child that's like picking at another student, like there's just one student, you're just like, you know, they're picking or they're poking or whatever. There's like steps to like, instead of like just screaming or operating like whatever, hitting them or whatever. And it was called the debug way. Like they're bugging you, debug. And, you know, there was different things. And the first one was to do this. And so you'd see little kids in the classroom and they'd just do this. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of like passive aggressive, I feel. But, you know, they would just do this and hope it would stop. Well, that's not going to make this beast go away. <laughs> That's not, it's not enough. Okay. The second beast. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the land. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. He exerts all his power and right of control of the former beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell upon it to exalt and defy the first beast whose deadly wound was healed and to worship him. He performed great signs, even making fire fall to the sky. It was impressive. The second beast was impressive is what it's saying. And because of the signs which he's allowed to perform, he deceives those who inhabit the earth. Verse 15, and he is permitted to impart the breath of life into the beast's image so that the statue of the beast could talk and cause to put to death those who would not bow down. This is also a corresponding reference to Daniel chapter 3 where the people were forced to bow down to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar built. And whoever didn't would be thrown into the fire and literally burned alive. Verse 16, he also compels all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked 
with an inscription on their right hand or on their foreheads. Again, we're seeing here that it makes no difference. He's making a point of making no difference. No background doesn't matter. What color you are doesn't matter. What, wh where you come from doesn't matter. We're all equal playing field in this moment is what he's saying. All, all the people. So that no one will have power to buy or sell unless he bears this inscription, which is the name of the beast and the number. Here is room for discernment. Let anyone who has intelligence calculate the number of the beast for this human number, and his number is 666. These beasts, beast number one and beast number two, are requiring full allegiance from the people of the nations, is what it's saying. And it's interesting how the first beast represents military or violence and, and conquest, but then the second beast shifts this focus to more of a hidden, demonic, behind-the-scenes type of, of deal where, where it's, it's harder to identify that there's a beast at work. It's focused on economic propaganda where, where it, it it gets into our heads. It infiltrates our minds. It's the thought patterns and the belief systems of society that will only work this way. And we, we kind of have to because this is just the way it is. And this is how I'm going to get ahead. And this is life. And we begin to believe lies of society. And we're blinded by the truth and we don't even know it. So the first is more obvious. The second is more hidden. So these beasts are on assignment from their leader, the dragon, and their intention is to win over all of humankind. It was first the dragon's intention to attack the Messiah and then his seed. The worst part is the world doesn't even know it. So these beasts are forcing everyone to take this mark. 666, on their forehead or on their hand. And without it, it says you can't even buy or sell, which means you won't be able to fully function in the world as you know it. So it feels like you just kind of have to. It's just like it's the right thing to do because this is the way it is. So what does this mean? Is this a literal number that we're going to get stamped? Or, or is it a belief system that we will embrace? It's also interesting to note as we've talked about before in, a, in another message, that God's people were giving a seal of protection. Do you remember that? How they were sealed? The 144,000 were sealed from the enemy, protection from the enemy. But these people are given a mark of identification with the enemy. See, Christians are sealed and non-Christians are marked. Christians are sealed and non-Christians are marked. So people over centuries have been obsessed with this number, right? This 666 number. You see it on a license plate. You're like, <gasps> you're like, I hope I never get that one. Some people panic. Some people paint it as graffiti on buildings as some kind of point of view that they worship Satan. I don't know. And they hate Christians. The problem with this obsession is that we don't have the knowledge needed to understand it. Um, so we draw conclusions from media, from creepy stories that we've been told, from uh, Google searches, and from what maybe our great-great-grandmother said. And that is not the recommended place of where we find answers to the mysteries of the scripture. 
And it's also not recommended that you just form a small group and talk it out until you come to a general agreement. <laughs> this is not the way. First, let's talk about what's prophetically obvious. The number seven, as we know, as we've been we've talked about, is the biblical number of completion. So if you ever see a seven, it's like the biblical number of completion. And we've seen John weave it in the book of Revelation all over the place. There's this seven seals, the seven trumpets, the bowls that's coming, the seven churches, seven, seven, seven. It's the completed work of the Lord, the completeness, the fullness of God, number seven. We also see the beast in some that we read trying to take that number and make it his. So the number here, 666, perhaps, the number six is the picture of falling short of the perfection. See, the enemy was trying to achieve his lordship as perfect as one to be followed. But as we see, he's thrown out of heaven and he's, and he's, he's given this number six. But not just six, 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 emphasizing the dramatic fall and how completely lacking he is. Now let's bring this into biblical context to John's day in order to ensure we're both grounded in history and in scripture. The number 666 was a Hebrew reference. This wasn't a mystery to John as it is to us today. It was clear. John spoke both Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters are actually numbers as well. So this mark symbolized two things. The first thing, it was the anti-Shema. The anti-Shema. The Shema was an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God. So if you prayed the Shema, it was your allegiance to God. And this prayer was marked on one's forehead or one's hand. And this was a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and all your actions to the one true God. So this mark here was the enemy's demonic opposition, his plan to come against the allegiance of the Lord and to draw people into his loyalty in their thoughts and in their actions, both beasts. It's the rebellious nations demanding their own allegiance and attempting to take control and force everyone to choose that they have to make a decision who they're going to follow. The second thing that the mark symbolized was in the actual number, 666. So in Hebrew, as I mentioned, each letter represents a number. If you spell the words Nero, Caesar, and Beast, the letters in Hebrew amount to 666. Now, what John is not saying is that the evil Nero, Caesar, and the beast are the only examples of the anti-Shema or the allegiance to God, but rather an example of. And the historic pattern of nation after nation after nation becoming beasts when they choose to put their own power and their own economic security above the power of God. Thereby, they create a false god for people to be swayed by, enticed by, deceived by, and demanded allegiance to that false teaching and that false way of life. This is prevalent 
We see it everywhere. False security, leaning into earthly foundations that will not stand, that lead us down the wrong paths and to terrible destinations, all in the name of, well, I, I think that I probably know better. I think I could probably do this myself and I can choose my own path. And, and, and it hides under a pretense in our world of freedom and liberty when really it's marked by control and manipulation and deception by society itself. The scariest reality of deception is that you don't know you're deceived. That's why it's vital, and we've said this before, to have someone in your life that you trust more than you trust yourself. Have a friend in your life, a mentor in your life, that you trust more than you trust yourself. That way, if you ever find your place in, the, in a situation where you're deceived, you can go to that friend, that mentor, that pastor, and you could be like, help me with this. Am I seeing it correctly? And what, when they say, you know what, I think you're missing it here. Because you've already established such trust, you're going to be like, you know what, pray with me. I want to get out of this. Okay. Now, Because if you don't do that, you place yourself in a position to be swayed. Swayed away by mistakenly placing trust in the wrong person, in the wrong situation, the wrong decision. Now, if you were to go back to Daniel, back to this, you will see in the book of Daniel that Babylon was the beast. Babylon was the false god. And then you will, if you follow through scripture, you will see Persia. Then you will see Greece. Then you will see Rome. The Roman Empire was the beast. And here in John's day, you see it. So, so it goes for all nations that, that follow that will choose to act the same way. Now chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, the lamb stood on Mount Zion with him, the 144,000 who had his name. They were sealed. And his father's name inscribed on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of great waters, like a rumbling mighty thunder. They sang a new song before the throne of God and before the four living creatures and before the elders of the heavenly Sanhedrin. No one could learn to sing that song except the 144,000 who had been ransomed from the earth, redeemed from the earth. See, these are those who had been redeemed by the lamb. No lie was on their lips, for they are blameless. And then I saw an angel flying through midair with the eternal gospel of the good news to tell the earth to every race and every tribe and every language and every people. And he cried with a mighty voice, revere God and give him glory and honor, praise, worship, for the hour of his judgment has arrived. Fall down before him, pay homage and adoration for him who created the heavens and the earth. So this chapter is actually split into two parts. The first part is the lamb's army, and the second part is the final judgment or justice. The lamb's army and the final justice or judgment. So we have all this beast action taking place and then in the midst of all this chaos and evil and deception and, and and horrendous things happening you have there standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is the lamb's army the slain lamb standing there with his people 
who've given their lives to follow him. Just take a moment and picture that. The chaos, the evil, the confusion, the pain, the hurt, the hate. And then the lamb and his people standing there. And then from the new Jerusalem, which they've been waiting for, they begin to sing this beautiful melody, the song of victory, John calls it, the eternal gospel. And they sing it all together in the presence of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. But it's a song only the redeemed can sing. Why? Because angels don't know the song of redemption. Why? Because they've never been redeemed. There's an old song that says, it's a song all the angels cannot sing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's a song all the angels cannot sing. I once was lost, but now I'm found. They were never lost. They never had the sin, the pain, the mistakes to overcome. They'd never been snatched from the pit of darkness. They'd never hit rock bottom in their life of failures. They've never had unspeakable temptations to face and, and to be pulled out of. They'd never had fears to overcome. But the people of God, the followers of the Lamb that are standing here, they've been at rock bottom. They've been in pain and hurt. They've done horrendous things. And they were snatched from the pit of hell, from the abyss, from the claws of the dragon and from the beast and they were placed in the lamb's army the army of the redeemed they have a song it's a song of the redeemed of course they're singing what else can we do when we think that all of what God's done for us what else can we do but worship what else can we do but give our lives what else can we do they're singing the eternal gospel and in sync with them right here we have a three-angel encounter. <laughs> the first one is a flying angel in midair yelling to the nations of the world, fear God, give him glory. The judgment's here, worship him. The time is up. It's like the last call. Last call for everyone. The second one, another follows, says, Babylon the great has fallen. She who made the nations follow her idolatry is done. And then the third angel comes right behind saying, if you take the mark of the beast and you make him your God, you will suffer the wrath of the God. This is a crazy situation, guys. Like, think about all that's happening right now. Wow. I feel like it'd be like, what's going on? Then John keeps going. And then the second split of the chapter, he's like, he moves over to the final judgment which is what the angels talked about. And in verse 12, it says, Here comes a call for steadfastness of the saints. And then I heard further a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead from now on who die in the Lord. And I looked, behold, there was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud, one who resembled the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out, called with a mighty voice. Who was, he said to him who was sitting on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, for the hour has arrived to gather the harvest. The earth's crop is fully ripened. 
So he who was sitting on the cloud, Jesus, swung his sickle on the earth, and the earth's crop was harvest. Come on. This is a good thing. <laughs> and then another angel comes out of the temple, and he also carries a sharp sickle. And another angel came forth who had the authority and power over fire. He called with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, put it and reap the fruitage of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are entirely ripe. So the angel did that, and he, he, he striped the grapes and gathered the, the vintage from the vines and the earth, and he cast them into the wine press of God's indignation and wrath. And then the grapes in the wine press were trodden outside the city. So in this final judgment, there's two harvests that we've just read about. The first one is a good thing. It's a good harvest of grain. It's King Jesus comes and gathers the people who have remained faithful. But the second one is a bad harvest of wine grapes. And this represents humanity's intoxication with evil, with misplaced trust, wrong allegiance, and they're taken into the wine press and destroyed. So the people of God are embraced where the followers of evil are tormented. Everybody breathe. We've covered a lot. We're almost done. We're going to circle back just to bring it to a finale. Through all these signs, these symbols, these visions, all the details of the bet, the beast, the dragon, the mark, John is placing a clear choice before the seven churches and before us. Will they, we, resist the lure of Babylon, which is society's pull, the nations, the beasts? Will we resist and stay true to the Lamb? Or will they and we follow the beast, follow the nations of the world, follow the systems and beliefs, and with it end completely devastated and defeated? John, with these visions, is giving the seven churches at the beginning of the book and giving us the end of the story. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen. How many know that an informed decision is a good is a good thing? You know, when we go on vacation and we're going to stay in a hotel, there's nothing that I have not uncovered, looked, researched. I mean, literally. Like, my family is so confident to know that we are going to stay in a nice place. I'm going to get the nicest place for the best deal from the best location. And, like, it, it is a thorough, like, it takes me a long time. But by the time we go, we are confident. An informed decision is a good decision. It's like, follow this way. This is how it ends. Follow this way. This is how it ends. And that's exactly what John's saying and what I'm saying right now. Because you and I know too much to continue living in either opposition or even living casually towards the Lord. Guys, follow this way. This is how it ends. Follow that way. This is how it ends. There's no surprise. There's no sudden turn of events. 
it's been made clear. So we're, we're either okay with, with partnering with the devil, with eternal torment, with fire, we, or we don't quite believe it and we're willing to take the risk. I'm not sure. But however, if we do believe it, and it, it, if, you, if you know it to be true, why wouldn't we give him our all? Why wouldn't we tell everyone else in the world to do the same? After everything he's done for me, my bare minimum is my whole life. I was in high school. And we, I was in a Christian school, but how many know a lot of Christian schools are filled with a lot of non-Christians? <laughs> because they don't know where to send the kids that are having a lot of trouble. So they send them to the Christian school, hoping for the best. So uh, I was in this class one day, and we started to have this debate about if it's real or not. If God's real, if heaven's real, if hell's real, all that. And um, I, didn't, I don't engage in a lot of debates because I don't find them very productive. So I don't do this. And there's a lot of debate happening. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But it was something inside of me didn't like it because there's a lot of people saying, like, no, it's not real. I don't believe it. And, the, and they were, you know, they had their arguments. And then I said this. I was kind of quiet in class. Every once in a while I'd say something. But I said this. You know, I'd rather bank my whole life on Jesus and come to the end and find out it wasn't real than to do the opposite and come to the end and find out it was. I was young. I was probably 15. The first option, I said, I still had a great life and I lost nothing. But the second option, maybe I had a good life. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. But in the end, I lost everything. The air went out of the room. John has put the choice out there. He said a lot. I've said a lot today. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are ready to go home. <laughs> As we leave today and as I conclude, I want to encourage you to take time to apply these four final thoughts. Number one, our battles are spiritual in nature. Fight appropriately. Number two, our decision to live a certain way affects more than just us. Number three, our choice is now, not later. And number four, the lamb is worthy of our whole life. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? You are so worthy. You are so worthy. You are so worthy, Jesus, of our whole lives. I pray today for each one who has heard the words of, 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 of your revelation of Jesus found in Scripture today. I, I pray that as we've all heard it and we have ingested some of it, I pray that you would go deep, Holy Spirit, in us. 
for the outworkings of it in our lives. I pray that you would help us process and apply today. I pray that the things that weren't so clear would be made clear. And I pray that you would even take us further into encounter with you through your word today. We ask that you would make all things revealed to us in your word as you would desire for us to follow closely and in truth, in absolute truth. In Jesus' name.